I'm glad to be here. We do have study guides uh, for this evening. There's some on either side of uh, the rows of chairs. So you guys will need your study guide. You will also need a Bible. Who brought their Bible tonight? Guys, that's making me a lot happier because you guys are starting to bring your Bibles. It's making me thrilled. I'm happy, happy, happy that you're doing that. Um, so let me kind of uh, let me kind of tell you guys. A couple of about a few years ago, I went to go see a movie. It was not the highest grossing movie of all time, but it was the movie that preceded the highest grossing movie of all time. I went to go see the Marvel Avengers movie, The Infinity War. All right, now I went to go see it with a bunch of fellow nerds like I am, all right? And one of the nerds that I went to go see it with was a man named Stacy Lowry. Some of you know Stacy. Some of you have no idea who he is, so if you don't know who he is, let me go ahead and just sum up Stacy Lowry in one sentence. Stacy Lowry is an irredeemable nerd, all right? That means that there is nothing about him, zero things about him that is not nerd, all right? In fact, in fact, he is so much of a nerd that, shut up, all right? He is so much of a nerd, for those of you in TV land who don't want to just happen, the mustacheless Casey just sneezed. And you shouldn't be sneezing. There's no mustache to tickle your nose. So he deserved to shut up there. Anyway, Stacy has, he is so much of a nerd that he is hostile to anything that looks manly at all. Like sports. <laughs> like. Like I said, he's hostile to everything that is manly in this world, right? But Stacy went to go see the Infinity War with me, all right? Now, if you have ever read the comics, like I have, you know how Infinity War is going to end. I knew exactly how it was going to end with the good guys losing. Spoilers. With the good guys losing. Alright? Infinity War was going to end with the good guys going down. That was just going to happen. We went to go see the movie, and we're sitting there and we're watching it, and Stacy has it in his mind, I think, that somehow they were going to tweak the ending to where the good guys end. It does not happen. And Stacy leaves the theater so mad. He made this declaration. He said, I'm so mad right now. I'll never see that movie again. Okay, Stacy. He's probably watched it half a dozen times since then. But the reason why they ended it with that moment to where you kind of looked around and said, well, what is going to happen? What is going to take place? How can they move on past this? If it seems like a certain option is taken off the table, how can we move past it? And then they released uh, Avengers Endgame, which was the follow-up to that, and they showed you this is how, this is how the good guy wins. The good guy did not lose so much as 
they just broke up the story of his winning in two sessions. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is I'm going to try to dismantle certain mindsets that perhaps we have brought with us into tonight's Bible study. All right, I'm going to try to dismantle some of those things because far too often we, even as churchgoers and even as members or faithful attenders of North Clay, we bring ideas to the table that are not backed up in Scripture. And in order to get a true understanding, a real look at what's going on in Scripture, what salvation is all about in Scripture, we've got to, at the start, dismantle maybe some wrong presuppositions. But it will not end after tonight. We will come back next week, and it will not be a dismantling next week. Rather, it's going to build up and raise up and exalt the glory of God. Does that make sense? So tonight, my goal is to challenge you just enough to break down maybe some wrong biblical or some misunderstood thoughts you have about what the Bible teaches. All right? And in so doing, it will prepare you for next week to come back with a foundation that is secure upon the Word of God so that we can see Christ for who He is and we can see the plan of salvation through the lens of how God puts it into us. Okay? So let me pray for us. And then we're going to jump into some Scripture. We're going to jump into uh, walking through our time tonight. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do praise you and I thank you for the opportunity we have to be here and the opportunity, the privilege that we have to open up your word, to learn the truths that you have for us. I pray, God, that you would break down and just crumble to pieces any false understanding that we might have brought with us in here tonight about what salvation looks like. God, at the outset, we want to declare that salvation is only a work of Your hand. That, Father, if it is not for Your grace, through faith in Your Son, Jesus, we will never be saved. And so, Father, as we begin our study in this difficult this difficult doctrine of being chosen of being elect of being predestined as we begin this study tonight i pray that we would look to you to humble us to dismantle things that are wrong so that we can see your marvelous salvation for what it truly is it's your son's name, Jesus. We do ask these things and for his sake. Amen. So I'm going to try and bridge the gap really quickly between where we left off last week into our study this week. And this study is called Chosen. And our key verse is 1 Peter 2.9. But we're not really going to get to 1 Peter 2.9 this evening. I will read it to you. It's on your study guide. 
First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And the key word that we're going to focus on is that word chosen. You are a chosen race. A chosen race. Alright, and because that word chosen has with it so many implications. For example, you guys had a choice tonight when it came to pizza. What was your choice? Pepperoni and cheese. How many of you got pepperoni? How many of you got cheese? How many of you got both? Alright? You had a choice tonight. We all know what choices are. We all know what it means to choose a thing. Alright? But far too often we think of the choice being on our end. 1 Peter 2.9 puts the choice in God's hands rather than eyes. But we will get to that more at the end of tonight and really diving into it next week. Right now, let me bridge the gap between our study of Martin Luther and the Reformation to tonight's study. So you guys remember how I told you about Martin Luther and how he proclaimed the gospel of Christ all to, or to everyone that he encountered, how he translated the Bible from the Latin language into the German language, how everywhere he went was all about the gospel. And the Catholic Church hated him at that time. They despised him. And it wasn't just Luther. It was anyone who listened to Luther's teaching, looked into the Bible for themselves, and came away with what we know now and what they should have known then as a right understanding of the gospel. And the Reformation, the teachings that were reclaimed during that time, became significant for every single Protestant church, by the way, Baptists are Protestants. Methodists are Protestants. Presbyterians are Protestants. All right, Any denomination other than Roman Catholic is by definition a Protestant. Some of them are better than others. But the name Protestant implies you protest against the wrongs that were being taught back then. So we protest against that. And here's the way that they protested, there was a, a kind of a battle cry of the Reformation, if you will. There were kind of five essential teachings that came out of the Reformation, five of them, and they're known as the five solas of the Reformation, okay? The five solas of the Reformation. Now, the word sola is a Latin phrase, or is a Latin word, and all of these solas are Latin words, okay? But here they are, the five solas of the Reformation, sola gratia, which means grace alone, sola fide, which means faith alone, solus Christus, meaning Christ alone, sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, meaning glory to God alone. For the purpose of our study tonight, we're really going to focus in on those first three. Soli gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone. Now, when you look at those things, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone, when you look at those things, is there anything in there that you look at and think, man, 
The Roman church definitely should have had a problem with that. Should the Roman church, should they have had a problem with grace alone? What do you think? Should they have had a problem with grace alone? If they followed the Bible, should they have had a problem with grace alone? No, but they did have a problem with grace alone. What about faith alone? If they followed the Bible, should they have had a problem with faith alone? No. What about Christ alone? That one blows my mind maybe more than any others, that Christ alone would be something that they rebelled and fought against. Scripture alone, glory to God alone, all these things we look at and we go, what's there to fight over that? But I am going to highlight for us the, main, the, the top three most, but even more than that, like what Pastor Tim did this past Sunday, we're going to really zero in on that top one. And the reason for that is because people, even within Baptist churches, Protestant churches, they really take issue with grace alone. And it has to do with this idea of being chosen, has to do with this idea of being predestined, has to do with this idea of being elect. Chosen, predestined, and elect are all going to be three terms meaning the same thing as you'll find out. Okay? But don't put this on the screen yet. I want to ask you guys, if we're going to really zero in and find out what's the problem with these, with these five solas, particularly these first three, if we're going to look at this, we need to have some terms defined. The first term we've got to look at is grace. Don't put it up on the screen yet. But what is God's grace as you understand it? What is God's grace? God giving us something we don't deserve. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Not giving us what we do deserve. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the flip side of the same coin, right? You deserve this, but I'm going to give you this, right? So, as I've defined it, number two on your study guide, what is God's grace? It's God's undeserved favor. Now, what is favor? If, if, if you have a favor, if you have a favorite, what does that mean? You like it the most? You prefer it? You will seek it out? When we talk about God's grace, we're looking at God's undeserved favor. Now, that is at the heart. God's grace is at the heart uh, looking at this idea of being chosen and being predestined and being elected. God's grace is at the heart of that. His undeserved favor. But that should be a little bit offensive because if we look at that and if we see that and if we say that we need God's grace, or that it is by grace alone we are saved. That should be offensive because what we are saying is we don't deserve the good that we're asking Him for. We don't deserve the good that we desire from Him. 
Everybody breathe in and breathe out. You did not deserve that breath. Who gave it to you? God. Can everybody feel your own heartbeat? You don't deserve the next beating of your heart. But who is it who caused it to go? God. We don't deserve that. And if we really boil that down, we sit there and we think, hold on a second. What do you mean I need God's grace? Why do I not deserve a breath? Why do I not deserve a heartbeat? Why do I not deserve to be saved? Why do I not deserve, hang on, to be born again? And say that again. Because we're sinners. So the question we have to ask next is, why do we need God's grace? Why do we need it? Why do I need God's grace? What is it about me that doesn't deserve favor? What is it about me that keeps me from deserving good things from God? What is it? Why do we need God's grace? Number three on the study guide, because of our sin. And I added here that it was started in Adam. I won't have you flip there. But in Genesis, in Genesis, we know the story of Adam and Eve, right? Who is Adam? Who is Eve? First man and first woman to ever have lived. All right? Adam is our representative. Adam is the first man, which means he is the representative of all mankind. Every man who will come after that is going to follow in his footsteps in some way, shape, form, or fashion. So why do we need God's grace? Because of our sin that started in Adam. Did Adam start off sin in the world? Did he start off sin in the world? He maybe didn't start off sin in the universe, but he did start off sin in the world. Did he start off sin in humanity? Did he start off sin in creation as we know it? Yes, he did. Because of our sin that started in Adam. So I'm going to read Romans 5.12. Will someone else look up Psalm 51.5? You got that, Andre? Someone Psalm 58.3, Ava. Jeremiah 17.9, Josiah. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Have your Bible? Will you look that up for me? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Andre in the back. I'll get, you'll, there's plenty more that's coming up. On, uh, I'm sorry. I said Andre. I was looking at, so here's what happened. I looked at Aiden, and I was looking back at Anthony, and I threw, I combined them somehow to make Andre. In the transition from going from Aiden to Anthony, it became Andre. It's because there's a D in Aiden's name. I do. It made sense in my head, guys. It made sense in my head. Hey, at least that time I got your name right, and it was Anthony's name that got right, right? Right, 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 right. All right, Anthony, so will you look up 1 Corinthians 2.14 for us? All right, so let me read Romans 5.12 so we understand that why do we need God's grace? Because of our sin that started in Adam. All right, so Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death 
spread to all men because all sinned. We understand that what Adam and what Eve did in the garden was not an isolated event. What he did there, what he did when he sinned, transferred, transmitted, went through all of us. It spread to every person who would come after. Because Adam sinned, because Adam died, so we sin. And so we die. You guys see that? But maybe, maybe, just maybe, when Adam died, we get a fresh, clean slate. Maybe, just maybe, that sin and death, maybe that's something that if, if, if we could just be good enough, if we could just be right enough, if we could just be holy enough in our own, maybe, maybe if we could just generate within ourselves a righteousness that Adam should have had at the beginning, maybe then, maybe then the slate is wiped clean. What does the rest of the Bible have to say about that? Let's go through the rest of these scriptures. Psalm 51, 5. Brought forth in iniquity. We'll just say for right now that's a fancy word for sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, while you were still in your mother's womb, you were a sinner. Psalm 58.3 The wicked go straight from the what? The womb. There is not a breath that a child takes that is not wicked in its own natural state. Jeremiah 17.9. Well, and let me, let me, before we go to that, you know one of the, the, the main things that is said to everybody here, they always say, hey, just, just follow your heart. Just, just follow your heart. People are basically good at their heart. Oh, listen, I know I did wrong, but God knows my heart. He does. And do you know what he sees when he looks at your heart? Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when you say, yeah, but God knows my heart, that should terrify us. Why do we need God's grace? Because since our first breath, since being in our mother's womb, we have been living in a state of natural sin to our sin-dead lives. And it's sick. Our hearts are sin-sick even worse, they are sin dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
literally, that verse says, takes this step further even in the language that Jeremiah used. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and sick. And Paul comes along in Ephesians and says, it's dead in its trespasses and sins. That we all walk in deadness. What did I say, Lexi? What words did I just say? So maybe don't whisper in people's ear and maybe be concerned with your own ears. Okay? That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. And not only are we are we just inactive? You know, when we think of a dead thing, we think of an inactive thing. The Bible describes us as like living in that deadness. Like living in that flesh. We walk in that deadness. When you think of walking dead, what comes to your mind? Zombies, right? There's not a person who looks at a zombie or any makeup or anything like that that makes you to depict you like a zombie, there's no one who looks at that and says, yeah, <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah, no one looks at that and says, hey, sign me up today, buddy. You want to know why? Because it's gross. It's grotesque. You don't want to walk as dead. And yet the Bible says that's exactly what you do. You walk as dead and you carry about a life that is wrapped up in deadness. That's you. And that's me. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So here's why we bring this verse here at the end. Because as we're sitting there and as we're thinking up this idea, okay, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're walking in deadness. We're walking as depraved and wretched and grotesque things before God. Our hearts are wicked. It started with Adam and it's continued through us. We weren't even born alive. We were born in this deadness. This has been our condition since day negative nine months. And not only are we walking that, we sit there and we think, okay, but, but, I know that there is salvation. Okay, but I know that there is a hope. I know that there is a gospel. I know that there is a good. And you're right, there is. But we've got to let it weigh on us right now that what we just heard from 1 Corinthians is that even though there is a good, even though there is a hope, even though there is a life, even though there is a walking in not dead, but in life, even though there's that, we don't want it. We have no desire for it at all. Rather, our passions and our desires and our wants are wrapped up in everything that it means to be dead. 
Now think about that. You, in this illustration, are a walking dead thing that cannot, not only can you not, but even if you could, you would not choose life. That's you. And that's me. So where's the hope? We're supposed to be talking about this gracious thing. Where's the hope? Where is it? Before we get to that step, we have to ask, well, is there anything I can do about my sin? Maybe that one verse can be disproved. Maybe there's something else in the Bible that can, that can look somewhere else. Is there anything I can do about my sin? And the answer to that is no. Because of sin, we cannot and we would never want to turn to God. And we've got verses here that are going to prove that. We've got verses here that are going to show us that. So Aiden, will you look up Isaiah 64, 6? Because I know you asked on the last one. Who wants Psalm 14, 2 through 3? Go for that, Andre. John 6, 44. Go for it. You want Romans 3, 10 through 12? Romans 3, 23. And Romans 7, 18. I'll, I'll go with Anthony in the back since he's... Uh... All right. So what if, what if we decide in our deadness, what if we decide, well, hey, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll do right. I'll do good things. I'll, listen, I'll start reading my Bible. Listen, I'll start going to church. Man, I'll start praying. You know what? I might be dead in my trespasses and sins, but you know what I can do? This dead man can pick up a Bible and read it. This dead man can can go feed the poor. This dead man can do some good things. I can do some right things. I can do some holy things, right? I can do some stuff that's not dead, right? Isaiah 64, 6. What does that tell us? All of our righteousness, all of our righteous things, all of the good things that we can do, all of the great and lofty and high things that we put on a pedestal so often, all of those things are, Isaiah says, filthy rags. Filthy rags. And you need to understand this. I won't get into the grotesqueness of the term that's being used there, but this is a filthy rag that is soaked in blood. Like that's the kind of filthy rag. It is soaked in blood. What are you going to do with a blood-soaked rag? Nothing. There's nothing good going to come out of that. Psalm 14, 2 through 3. There is none who does good, not even one. 
none who does good, not even one. God, it says, looks down to see if there is any who would, anyone who would seek after him. And guess what? None sought after him. No one did. And guys, that's not just people that are being talked about way back then. That's us sitting here in this room right now. In our own walking deadness, we will not seek after God. Never. So how can anyone be God's? How can anyone do it? You can't. But John 6, 44 might be the first breath of light that we want to try and see here. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws from me. And the last day I will rise and raise him up. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws them. What does it mean to draw something? To pull in? Yeah, if, uh, a good example also. Think of, have you guys ever seen uh, a well being used? All right. What do they call it when you put the bucket down there to get water? Drawing water up. All right. Can that water meet halfway? No. There has to be the person who is going to draw the water has to go all the way down to the water and has to completely do every bit of the action. So how can we get out of this state of walking deadness? How can we get out of that grotesque image that's in our mind and is our reality? We have to be drawn. There has to be a choosing somewhere. But it's not our choosing. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Who had that one? No one does good, not even one. There is none righteous. Back to the same idea. This is not just an Old Testament thing. This is not just something about God when the sacrificial system was going on there. No, this is a New Testament even after Jesus came. That's our condition. Romans 3.23, same chapter, just a couple of verses down. For a few have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? No, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a man, woman, or child who is not touched by this from the womb until the tomb. Mm. Romans seven eighteen. Understand what Paul writes about there. Paul is writing as a man who was a dead man walking, who had been changed to a man walking a new life. And as he looked at his life, he says there, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right not the ability 
to carry it out. In Paul's own flesh, in his own strength, in his own ability, he could do nothing. But there's a glimmer of hope, right? We had it right there in the halfway point. There's a glimmer of hope. You can do nothing. Even if you want to, you can do nothing. But that glimmer of hope is there is a drawing. There is a choosing. But we cannot rely on our choice. We cannot rely on our ability. We cannot rely on our strength. So, if we cannot look to us, if you can't look to your heart to do the right thing, if you can't look to your abilities to do the right thing, if you can't look to when you were a child to say, well, I was good then, if you can't look to even a righteous deed because it's like a filthy rag, or your intent, because you cannot even intend to do a perfectly righteous thing, then where do we look? What choosing do we look to? What election, what choice must take center stage? If not yours, then whose? Number five. We must rely on the grace of God to choose to save us. To choose to save us. Why do we have to rely on the grace of God instead of our abilities? Because the Bible makes it clear. Because our abilities will lead us straight to hell. Our abilities and our own are nothing but wickedness, are nothing but unrighteous deeds. Even our righteousness is as a filthy rag. So we must rely on the grace of God to choose to save us. We must rely on the undeserved favor of God to choose to save us. Let's look up some Bible verses again. Titus 3.5. Who wants that one? Andre. Romans 11.6. And you'll do Luke 19.10, okay? All right. So Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Read that for us when you were there. He saved us not because of what we could do or not because of what we can add to His kingdom or what we could add to His godness. He didn't save us because of who we are. He saved us because of who He is. It was His choice, not our works. It was His decision, not ours. And if we're going to throw ourselves upon a grace, if we're going to throw ourselves upon a choice, we better not throw ourselves upon our own because if we throw ourselves upon our own, we will end up desperately in need of a Savior all the more. Romans eleven six. 6. But if in doing nothing you resist the 
It's by grace. It's not by works. You cannot do any righteous thing that will get God to go, hey, look at that guy. I think I'll save him. You can't do something so spectacular for all of mankind that God says, man, I've got to have him as a part of my kingdom. You know, one of the things that always has bugged me, one of the statements that's been said for as long as I've been in church, and adults, you probably have heard this as well. When we see like this, this mainstream uh, athlete or an actor or a musician, someone who's got this incredibly high uh, platform, someone who's got this amazing audience, and we sit there and we go, man, if God would just save him, think about what he could do for the kingdom. Man, if God would just get him, just think about what he could do. And you know what we're doing there? We're looking at a man or a woman's abilities or talents or their works or their good deeds. We're looking at that and we're saying, man, they deserve to be saved because then they could do something awesome. But guys, that's not what this is about. It's not about what we can do to get God to look at us. It's about God's choice and His mercy and His grace upon us. Luke 19.10. So you guys remember at the earlier verse when it said no one seeks after God, right? No one seeks after God. And that includes you and that includes me. None of us seek after God. So we needed a Savior who would come to seek and to save the lost. Because these dead, grotesque things walking around, living in deadness, we would never seek after them. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's got to be about Him. We've got to take the focus off of anything we can do and we've got to look at God. And we've got to see that He is the author. He is the good guy in the story. He is the righteous and holy one. And you know what we are? You know what we are? We're the bad guys in this story. And it's only by God's grace that something can be changed about that. So, what we're going to do now, we're going to try something a little bit different. I've got Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 printed on your study guide. Okay? And this is where we're going to start seeing grace through faith in Christ. We've looked at it's got to be by grace, but we're going to see the through faith and we're going to see in Christ here in this verse. But what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to write on your sheet of paper with these verses so that we can start seeing the connectors, so we can start seeing the way that they're going to join together. Okay, so here we have Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay, let's break this down. Does everyone have something to write with? All right. I want you to take and I want you to circle the word grace. Circle the word grace. And I want you to underline the word faith. All right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay. As we see that, we see the mechanism that it's going to go, okay? For by grace, and whose grace are we looking to? God. You have been saved through faith. Now, where is the faith come from? Is that a God action or is that an us action? It's God? What did you say? God's? Uh, oh, you said us? God? Us? Okay. So there's some distinction, there's some clarification that he's made here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Is this a God action and a man action where God gives grace and man gives faith and then they meet in the middle and poof, salvation happens? Is that's what's going on here, okay? Is that's what's going on here? Let's look at it. Let's look at this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Okay, okay. You guys need to underline that word gift. Underline that word gift. All right? Because I need to ask you this question right here and now. Okay? What is the gift of God that's being talked about in this verse? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift? Salvation is the gift, but the sal but but. Salvation has come by grace through faith, okay? So we're saying that salvation is the overarching thing. So yes, salvation is the gift, all right? But in this verse, it describes salvation as by grace through faith. And those two markers right there are one, one of those two markers has to be the gift. And we're going we're gonna to break this down, okay? But what is the gift? Salvation is the gift, but... When we say, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. Which one of those is the gift? It's, I mean, it's okay. It's hard. It's hard. And by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is not your own doing? What is not your own doing? What's the gift? The faith. The faith is not your own doing. You can underline not your own doing. You can underline gift. And you need to understand that in this sentence construct, and it even goes if you go into the Greek, okay, and you see it, that the not your own doing and the gift is not talking about the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. Faith is the mechanism that we become involved in to where we can be saved. Now, it's by God's grace and grace alone, but it's through faith. It's through faith in us. But that faith that we have, the faith 
that we put in God is not our own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. You might say, well, how can you be so sure that faith is the gift and not grace? How can you be so sure that faith is not your own doing and it's not talking about grace is not your own doing because of the next words. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. If the faith is your own, if the faith is something that you have and doesn't have to be given to you, then it is by definition a work. Do you guys see that? Does that make sense? If you can generate your own faith to put in God, if you can in your dead, walking around, grotesque state, if you can all of a sudden generate enough faith in your heart to put in God, then that's a work. And you know what you can do? You can boast in that work. You can say, I mean, God maybe came 99% of the way, but I went that 1% and that 1% was all me. You know what you can do? You know what you would do? Immediately say, look at the 1%. Look at me. No, there is no boasting whatsoever. There is zero room for you to have bragging rights. Understand that when we look at the Bible, it paints us in a very awful, tragic state. And we need to crumble this idea that somehow, some way, we've done something to where God would look it up and say, man, that's the guy, or man, that's the girl that I want. We've got to dismantle that. We've got to put that to rest right now. And we have to recognize that there is nothing we can do, nothing we can contribute, there is nothing that we can add to what God has done to make us saved. Even our own faith is a gift from God. And I'll prove it to you even from another standpoint. Jesus did say, and I keep meaning to do this, I will do it eventually when I don't forget that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, all right? I've always wanted to get y'all little mustard seeds. Have you guys ever seen a mustard seed before? You know how small they are? They're tiny. Like if I were holding a mustard seed up here in front of you, you couldn't even see it. That's how small it is. If you had faith even the size of a mustard seed, you know what Jesus told you you could do if you had faith the size of a mustard seed? What did he say? Tell a mountain to move. Guys, have you ever seen someone tell a mountain to move and it obeyed? No. Guys, we don't even have enough faith to move a mountain. How much more faith would it take to resurrect our sin-dead spirits? Infinitely more. We don't have enough faith to move a mountain, let alone to bring ourselves from death into life. For by grace, God's grace, you have been saved through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God. So number seven, and we're going to kind of end with this and, and move into the last part of our service. But if God chooses us 
then we must give up the thought that we contribute anything to our salvation. We don't even contribute the faith that God uses to save us. So where is their hope? Where is their good news? Where is there a, a relief from this feeling of dread that hopefully you might have? Well, it's in the choice of God. Because it can't be in our choice. It's in the work of God. Because it can't be in our righteousness. Where do we contribute? We contribute by putting our faith in Christ, but even that faith is given to us. And that's why the reformers were adamant to say, sola gratia, grace alone. It's the grace of God alone that saves you. That's why they were adamant to say, sola fide, faith alone. Because they understood rightly that if it's only by faith that we're saved, then it's not a work that we have. That work is a gift. So let me break down what we're going to hit at tomorrow. Or it's not tomorrow, but next week. Excuse me. We're going to look at the choices, at some of the choices that God, that we see clearly spelled out as this is God's choice. The Bible does tell us times where this is God's choice. We're going to look clearly at God's choice. We're going to look at when God made that choice. All right? Because that's important. If God made that choice because of something you did, then He's reacting to His creation rather than sovereign over it. So we're going to look at what His choices are. We're going to look at when He made His choice. And we're going to look at how He effectively brings about His choice. Does that make sense? And let me also add this to you. I've given you a lot of Scripture tonight to show you that if it's based on what you do and it's based on your choice, you're in a really bad spot. Okay? The reason why I've done that is because next week I'm going to throw words at you like predestination and election and chosen. And I had a conversation even this past Sunday with a pastor who told me, man, you believe in that predestination stuff, don't you? scoffing at it. The reason why I did so much work with the Bible tonight on just seeing our condition is because if we don't see our condition as desperately wicked in need of God's grace, then we will never see His choosing as the wonderful and amazing and beautiful thing that it is. Let me pray for us. 
We're going to sing songs to this incredible God who has chosen to save even sin-dead people like I was. And then if you have questions, please, please, please feel free to ask any of the adults in here. Ask me. Ask Pastor Tim. We would love to talk with you. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do praise you. And we thank you, God, that there is a hope even for those of us here who recognize from your scripture that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. God, I pray that as we've looked at the scripture tonight, as we felt the weight of where we are because of our sinfulness, because of our unrighteousness, that, Lord, You would start to bring about conviction and start to bring about a desire to know Your plan of salvation, to know Your Son who You brought it through, and to know the grace that You give and the faith that You provide and the Son who was given as a sacrifice so that we can have salvation. I pray that You would prepare our hearts by breaking down maybe any false presuppositions we had when we came to the table tonight. Prepare our hearts to look in your scriptures next week as we continue our study and look at your choosing and that we rely upon your grace. It's in your son's name, Jesus. We ask these things and for his sake. Amen.